I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This is a podcast from the Smart Material Collective, made by nerds, funded by the listeners. Hello and welcome to Why Aren't You a Doctor Yet, the only podcast that uses cutting-edge science to answer the questions that you actually have. Things like, why is the sky blue? What's up with trees? And does having a Nobel Prize mean that statistically you're more likely to be a cock? I'm your host, Alex Slathbridge. I'm a PhD student in biochemistry and computational biology, a comedian, and someone who prepared, like, really comprehensively for this episode. Like, I've made notes, everything. It's all right in front of me. You mean what I do for every episode? Yes, I know, but please, baby steps, like one step at a time. Yeah, okay, 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 mm-hmm. let me yeah, have it. Yeah, yeah, baby steps are good. Baby steps are good. Joining me today is Hannah IU. Hannah is an amazing creative producer. She makes really intricate art and she likes to neg me, even though she's the only one here. Like I feel as though because Sahel is at work and Oz is spreading his wings in Portland, like you have to make up for it like as much as possible. You've yeah, you've you've become the sole person to attack me. I mean, good? you you did recently describe me on another podcast as the good-looking one, the funny one, and the woman. Honestly, we've got enough diversity. She's an Asian woman. I'm a black disabled man. You're done. I mean, I'm even half white, so we've got a bit of tokenism in there. Oz, Sahel, don't come in anymore. So, Hannah, how has your week been? It's been interesting because I was quite ill last week, so I'm sort of still playing catch up and recovering this week because my respiratory system and my immune system are a disaster. Okay, so what actually... Oh my God, you could hear it. You had a little bit of the cocaine snorts. (laughs) I'm glad you find this funny. Yeah, the back of the bus at 2am, the little... little. This is why I neg you, because you make fun of my pain and suffering. Well, if I'm not going to, then you're just going to internalise it and then date terrible men. I mean, that would require actually dating. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, Alex, how's your week been? Uh, Really, really good. Um, I've decided that this month is going to be like a real point where I grow as a person. Like I'm going to make sure that I do all the things I set out to do. Like I've been going to the gym like a lot. And what I've learned is that doing a PhD for the last three or four years has made my muscles waste away. 
Like I've got pictures and I've got data from before I started my PhD of like my personal best and stuff. I can hit like a quarter of that now. My body weight dropped like 10 kilos. Let's fill it that way. Terrible, 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 terrible. To be fair though, what I'm saying is if you want to cut massively, do a PhD. Just, or I can do it easier. Just put yourself through a whole barrage of mental trauma. So on the topic of the PhD, how is the like time split between Netflix and writing going? Yeah, that's great. Next question. <laughs> nah, nah, actually it's been good because I'm now back in London writing full time. All I'm, the best people live. Yeah, no, completely. It means we Apart can, from Oz. Yeah, apart from Oz. No, um, what's great about being in London now, full time again, living you know, I get to see my dog all the time and I get to like work in different places around London. I'm slowly working my way around the circle line. Every single like cafe, like anywhere that has a power socket, McDonald's, anywhere, anywhere that won't judge me. So yeah, that's been my life for the last, I think last couple of weeks. And hopefully by the time this goes out, I'll have made like considerable progress in my PhD because right now I'm just arguing with spreadsheets, but arguing in such a way that I'm like, I cannot go back to the lab. I'm not going back to, to all the way down to the West Country. Fuck that place. So Hannah, what have you seen in the news this week? So James Watson, who was part of the team that discovered the structure of DNA, basically discovered Rosalind Franklin's notes. Oh, so, okay. So and took... she was dead by the time they got a Nobel Prize, so obviously she didn't get any recognition. Wait, you can't get a Nobel Prize when you're dead? Don't think so. Okay, so what's been happening with him? He has finally had to face some consequences for his comments on race and IQ. So it's Cold Spring Harbor in the US that has stripped him of a bunch of honorary titles that he had at the university. Why? He's been making stupid comments about the differences in IQ between black and white people, including saying that he's inherently gloomy about the prospect of Africa because all our social policies are based on the fact that their intelligence is the same as ours, whereas all the testing says not really. Given my desire never to stay away from messy problems, I, I was bound to myself sometimes. That's what I did. Have your views on the relationship between race and intelligence changed? No, not at all. I, I would like for them to change, that there be new knowledge which uh, says that uh, your nurture is much more important than nature. But I haven't seen any knowledge, and. Uh, there's a difference on the average between blacks and whites on IQ tests. I would say the, the difference is uh, uh, it's genetic. I'm a product of the Roosevelt era. And if you ask me uh, what people thought about race in the Roosevelt era, we thought there were differences. Thomas Jefferson thought there were differences. It should be no surprise that someone who wanted to find the double helix believed the genes were important. To the extent uh, uh, 
that uh, 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 I, I've heard people, uh, of course I regret it, and, uh, you know, I like black people, so why would I want to hurt them? I don't know anyone who... who uh, takes any pleasure out of difference between black and white. We wish it didn't exist. Well, it's awful, just like it's awful for schizophrenics. But if the difference exists, then we, you have to ask ourselves, how can we try and make it better? I just don't, I don't understand it. It is very painful because I do love this man. I mean, you have to love the teacher who gave you your life you know, in science. You love that person, you know, and you have to. And I admire what he did for, you know, creating a world of, of science and creating the careers of all these people who everyone was privileged to have known such a person. I don't know. Wow. While his hope was that everybody was equal, he added, people who have to deal with black employees find this is not true. Maybe because they're racist. So a lot of these, I think these comments were originally made in 2007. Um, and he lost um, his job at, at um, Cambridge's Cavendish Lab at the time. But he's recently rep- repeated all of these, a lot of these statements um, in a documentary. He's now 90. Okay, so this was in 2007 he made the first mm-hmm. thing. So that's what, like 10, 12 years ago? So yeah. so what, when he was 77? Mm. Okay, look, morally speaking, we've got onto a question here about not the stuff he's saying, mm. but when it comes to like equality and stuff, um, I think ageism is a massive thing. And, you know, we've got to think about like how old he is when he's saying these mm-hmm. things. And really, I'm not excusing it, but what I'm actually saying is, is it immoral to beat up a 77-year-old? Like literally yeah, yeah, or yeah. like well, in academic no, debate? I, I don't mean with words. <laughs> All right. No, beating up people is immoral. Just full stop, Alex. Okay, look, you can punch a Nazi. You're saying I can't punch a racist 77-year-old who then says exactly the same thing like now. No, you're not punching anyone. I didn't say punch. I said destroy. You're not destroying anyone. You, you can't. I think I think people who listen to this podcast will uh, disagree with you. You can definitely. That's fine. I'm not fond of violence. You can beat up us. I, I, okay, if it comes to between him saying, like people listening to him and going like, oh, you know what? I agree with his views. Yeah, he won a Nobel Prize. He must be super smart. And then that going into like further into society. Yeah. So you see that happening, right? Would you allow that to happen and not beat him up? Or would you stop that from happening by beating him up? I'm not beating anyone up. Wow. I'm just saying. Okay, I think there's a, there's a more important thing here. And also in actually stopping his views from spreading, which is we need to acknowledge that these sort of beliefs, um, like fundamentally thinking there are intelligence differences between black people and white people, or fundamentally thinking that there are, you know, neurological differences between men and women, which we'll get onto in more detail, that these are these are not compatible with being a scientist who, you know, has faith in the scientific method and who actually interrogates data and questions what that data says. I think there is an assumption there that uh, scientists are all this sort of clean cut, like one thing, you are a scientist. And we know that you know, scientists are real people. They can have 
love that you know they can have interests outside of you know their work like any human being you know they can love dogs hate cats you know whatever all these things so you've got to assume that people's prejudices i.e if they're sexist if they're racist if they're homophobic and stuff the fact that they're a scientist you know doesn't change that i guess if they have those views yeah so you know but what i'm saying is that those views should change how we see them as scientists okay yeah sorry that makes yeah that makes sense but like isn't it good that he said this rather than it being covert? I don't know. I feel there's there is a sense to people believing things but actually being aware that it's wrong to, that we should that those views are not acceptable and they should not say them out loud. I think we're generally like living through a political time where people are increasingly thinking that dodgy opinions are fine to voice out loud. Okay, so that brings up a really interesting question. Do you prefer covert racism or overt racism? Go. Neither. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I think there is something positive about being in an environment where people are questioning their views enough that they don't think they should say those things out loud. Yeah, but look, I'm going to say this, and it might you might not agree with me, but I prefer people saying it to my face rather than when i leave the room they call me a nigger yeah, yeah i see your point and chances are if you hold views about you know gender you hold views about say homophobia if you hold views about like that are homophobic or um, misogynistic or racist or whatever mm-hmm. you aren't going to put yourself in an environment um like independently you aren't going to do it where you put yourself into an environment where you challenge those views I don't know if there's a bigger thing though about what we, we were talking about this earlier about the the fact that intent shouldn't matter in sort of racist views, sexist views, anything that maybe we as a society need to move beyond because the problem with I think distinguishing between overt and covert is we end up with the sort of thing of like well-meaning people being like well there is there are no race issues in Britain because you know it's all under the surface whereas actually if we examine the impact of things or the subtext of things that are happening and we acknowledge that um you know covert stuff can be as harmful as overt stuff that that's probably much more useful than actually comparing and contrasting the two. So you're talking about Britain as a society, yeah? Mm. And you're saying that Watson first made comments out in public in, what, 2007? Mm -hmm. And that Cambridge came down hard on him, yeah? Yeah. And then he went to America, I assume got another academic post or whatever. Mm -hmm. So a job in science. And then people were like, he said something racist, let's give him a job because he's won a Nobel Prize. Mm. And then now, lo and fucking behold, he said something racist. Do you think people should be held accountable? He would have had a platform inherently because he has a Nobel Prize. Mm. But at the same time, like you've given him extra legitimacy by bringing him to your place of work and you know, a big university or whatever. And so him doing a thing now, like... So if I remember some of the details of this, he actually apologised for his statements in 2007. And that's why Cold Spring Harbour kept him on. And I think part of them stripping of him of his honorary titles now is actually because he went back on that, because like that apology, that signed statement has been proven to be false. Um, as is the way of academia, it feels almost like it's a technicality rather than the actual things he's said. 
he's literally gone yeah i'm sorry actually i'm not sorry mm. so i mean so a new documentary came out was it this year so a documentary came out last what? year i think so a documentary came out last year and now he's being stripped of everything else he's been stripped of honorary titles i don't think he's actually working anymore oh okay so he's been stripped of his title but people are still gonna like listen to him about other things because he's got a Nobel prize cool do you think science can ever ostracize people i think science needs to stop prioritizing high profile individuals over the community I think that's what it fundamentally comes down to. If we accept that having people like James Watson in academic circles, if you know, is harmful to the people he thinks are less intelligent than him, you know, if we accept that having, you know, people who are known to be sexual harassers in academic circles is harmful to the women they're harassing, and that that harm, the harm it is doing to other people's research, you know outweighs the contributions they're making i think we need to look at this as like the the big picture because i i don't think anything's going to improve when it's still like well look at their amazing contributions so we should sort of let their behavior slide that's not the point it's what science hasn't happened because they've driven other people out of science so it's like similar to what people are saying in other industries like media mm. you know Kevin Spacey, oh, you know, you can look at the uh, actor as one thing, you know, you can look at him for his work and keep the person separate. And, you know, people like R. Kelly and stuff, you know, the songs are one thing, the person, the artist, you know, separating the art and the artist. So the same way they're trying to, you're saying people aren't and shouldn't try to separate the science from the scientist. No, because science is fundamentally a collaborative, you know, community. And it's not about individuals. Yeah, someone as high profile as him saying these things, it sort of begins to give legitimacy to those weird race science people. You know, the one, the people who are like looking into it, like, oh, well, you know, we aren't racist, but the science says. This, go this goes back a bit to what you're saying earlier about overt versus covert racism, right? And I think my problem with overt stuff is exactly that, like it legitimizes other people's point of views. I think, you know, there are scientists sat in their labs, there are people sat in their basements, there are people sat in their offices who maybe sort of have these views, but they're also aware it's not okay to say out loud. And like I was saying earlier, I think if they're aware it's not okay to say out loud, on some level they're questioning whether their views are right. When people start saying these things out loud and when high profile people start saying these things out loud, it gives legitimacy to that stuff. And I think that's where being over about things can be far more dangerous and can sort of take us back a lot, like backwards a lot quicker than covert stuff. People often ask what makes Chaotic Adequate different from the other live play RPG podcasts available on the fabulous internet. Well, other podcasts are heartbreakingly without actual scholar of horror, Amanda DeJoy. We're not prisoners, we're your You're all prisoners. No, 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 no. <laughs> I want to speak to the top priest. I want to speak to the manager. <laughs> they sorely lack comedian and actor Angus Dunnigan. She's uh, me, by the way. I say to this dragon, hello, are you the homeowner? <laughs> 
The dragon looks almost offended that you would imply that he was renting. And uh, other podcasts are tragically bereft of the scientist, comedian, and semi-professional troll, Steve Cross. All right, love. Chagrin Battlefounder, come to rescue you. Do you want to roll for potential seduction? Crucially, though, most D&D podcasts have a writer, creator, and dungeon master who's actually played the game before. We, conversely have Gregory Aikman. There's about 18 different possible quest lines you're going to take and only <laughs> you invented a new one. New episodes each week, new characters to meet slash accidentally murder, and always new things to get a bit wrong. Join us in the world of chaotic adequate. It's, it's very silly. Hello, listeners. This is Anna Pajajski here to tell you about my podcast, which, if you're listening to the current nerd content, I think you might enjoy. It's called Real Talk. Yeah, that is a pun on material, by the way. Real Talk is a podcast in which I, a clueless material scientist, chat to people who actually know what they're talking about when it comes to materials. For example, I've spoken to an embroiderer about cotton. So I'm very interested in using embroidery to explore what's going down at this sort of quantum level, like entropy and things, and how about the random nature of like atoms and particles. A timber expert about wood. We're trying to understand what makes the properties of wood how they are. So trying to understand what properties are important for different applications, uh, but also how those properties are influenced by the way that the tree grew. And a civil engineer about concrete. Um, full penetration butt world. <laughs> It's a serious thing. Find us at Real Talk. That's apostrophe R-I-A-L talk. I know, I know. It's a complicated search term, but you'll all feel so smug when you're in on our gaggle of podcast pals who all know exactly how punctuation marks work. Find us wherever you found this. So, Hannah, something amazing happened to you recently, right? I finally read the book Inferior and okay. actually like finished it this time. So what you mean Inferior by Angela Saini, how science got women wrong and the new research that's rewriting the story. Yeah, that one. The thing that you've been telling me about for ages. Yep. The thing that I read in the first week. I've read it three times now. You have talked to Angela. You talk to her a lot on social media. You've booked her for events and you had the audacity to not read her book. When I tweeted saying that I was reading it and was actually like determined to finish it this time, she did reply to me just being like, you what? You it, haven't finished it yet? It, it, honestly, it's really insulting. <laughs> to, to, be fair to, to be fair to myself, um, I think the first time I read it, I just wasn't in the right frame of mind. Mm. So I wasn't taking in the information well enough and I was just getting very, very angry. And like, I have a lot of anger at the world quite a lot of the time, but I don't always deal with it very well. Um, whereas this time I reread it whilst on holiday over Christmas in Singapore. And I made myself sort of like draw my notes um, as I read through it. And I think it just like all actually really sank in. Um, and I really, really enjoyed reading it. Okay, so for anyone that hasn't read it, what's it about? It's about how science got women wrong, um, sort of through the ages. So it goes right back to sort of, you know, theories from ancient Greek times and Darwin's theories of evolution, right through to sort of, you know, modern research looking at neuroscience and zoology and anthropology. I guess the main thing I'm going to ask uh, to begin with is, are 
male and female brains different? There may be differences, but they're not hardwired. So the book sort of starts by laying out the concept of sort of women's inferiority and where we are and talking about hormones and the idea that men and women, you know, reflect the passive egg and the active sperm then moves on to talking about sort of um, differences in biology. So how women get sicker, but men die quicker. So, you know, women tend to face many more autoimmune issues, um, but men are more likely to die from cardiovascular disease, high blood pressure, etc. Then move on um, talking about sort of differences at birth um, between girls and boys whether there are any um then on to brain differences um i i really love the like title of the chapter the missing five ounces of the female brain um which is almost definitely just because m- women are smaller physically who would have thunk it um then talking about sort of differences between men and women's work um you know what the sort of those different spheres of life then on to sexual behavior the idea that women are choosy but not chaste Um, Then my favourite chapter, um, why do men dominate? And then finally looking at, you know, sort of old women. So this idea of, you know, the old woman who wouldn't die, um, which is really interesting. So talking about how we are quite um, rare and unique as a species in that women continue to live long after they've lost the ability to reproduce. And that's like the grandmother hypothesis. Yes. Yeah. Um, the, which, you know, there is evidence that shows that children, that infants are more likely to survive when a grandmother is present. So we literally, this could be like five episodes. I think we're just going to jump into a couple of themes. I think what was really surprising surprising in terms of it being emotionally heavy is how much it made me think about um me as a scientist um and how how I felt about um what I studied so I studied zoology at university and also um, bits of psychology as well and I think that was the thing that hit me quite unexpectedly and it sort of kept hitting me after I finished the book that everything I was taught you know by a supposedly top university was biased you know like so many of these um you know great men of science that are sort of talked about in the book are you know the people that I learned about as the fathers of my subject you know who had made these amazing discoveries and there's there are all these amazing you know women in science who are mentioned in the book who've done like amazing science who I never heard of um, you know, there were a couple of them that I heard of through my own research that I did for my dissertation. Um, but it just really brought it home to me that, you know, it's not just scientific research that is biased. It's scientific teach- teaching is so, biased as well. So wait, who are the women that you like read about? So so I think it's pretty much Hardy, Sarah Hardy, the anthrop- anthropologist and primatologist was the only person I came across because um, I wrote my final year dissertation on infanticide in primates. This was like completely open. I could pick whatever I wanted to like spend six to nine months of my life writing a literature review about. You know, I could have done like dinosaurs or like, you know, why are cats fluffy or something like that. I went for primate infanticide. So when adult primates kill baby primates um, and specifically looked at how 
baby primates and female primates stop male primates from killing the babies. But it was a re- it was a really really interesting topic, um, you know, and it brought together zoology, psychology, anthropology. Um, it it led me to f- to find some absolutely bizarre things. I think my absolute favourite, like dodgy thing um i found whilst researching was an essay that argued that science is fundamentally anti-feminist because it relies on the male qualities of reason and logic i might have thrown the book that i was reading across the room at that point okay like i just actually want to start with the start of the book itself where i think Mm. angela talks about the fact that uh in school like when she was about 16 uh she was in like a science club and she was the only one there. Mm-hmm. Honestly, like I know it's a sad bit. That bit was fucking hilarious. <laughs> Reading that bit actually just made me think of like A-level physics classes and the fact that I had one teacher who, like it was, oh my God, it was so reliable. It was almost funny despite being terrible that there were two, I think two girls in the class and three boys by the time like 20 people had dropped out of physics. And every time the boys did an experiment that went wrong, it was clearly unlucky or, you know, it just gone wrong and it was fine. And every time um, me and my female friends' experiments went wrong, it was because we'd done something wrong or we didn't understand maths. And yeah, that's basically what I was thinking about when I read that bit of the book. So like with me finding that funny, it's not the fact that, you know, being a woman in science is inherently lonesome it's the fact that she was stuck on a school field yeah and she was the only one there and i was like look angela if you're listening to this and we aren't laughing at your childhood pain but we kind of are i mean we routinely laugh at our own childhood pain so so it's nice that someone who's done so well you know written such an amazing book that's you know got international accolades and is now in like every school in the uk um has come from someone who i mean I mean, look, you could have been watching Netflix at the time. Was Netflix a thing then? No. All right, well. Netflix wasn't a thing when we were kids, Alex. I know you have a short memory. Well, I have no concept of time. Um, There's one bit in this book, like talking about differences at birth Mm. and um, talking about... um, is it Baron Cohen? Um, I've forgotten his name. It- Simon Baron Cohen. Yeah. He's the brother of Sasha Baron Cohen. Cousin, I think. Cousin. Um, um, so talking about laughing at our younger selves, the first lectures I had from Simon Baron Cohen were in my first year of university. And they had the best turnout of like any of our lectures in that module. And I showed up like really geekily excited about being lectured by this guy because I'd learned loads about him during A-level psychology. It turned out the reason why most other people had showed up is because they were really excited about being lectured by someone who was related to Sasha Baron Cohen. Wait, the guy who did Bora Ali G. Wow. 18 year olds are weird. Okay. Um, So wait, who is Simon Baron Cohen anyway? He is a psychologist who is based at the University of Cambridge. So, like, you know, we're talking about like autism and stuff. Mm. He's meant to be like an meant to be. He's like an expert on autism and stuff. He's a slightly controversial expert on autism. So he is probably the biggest proponent of the like there being fundamentals of differences between like a male brain and a female brain. And I think he said that basically autism is like the extreme version of a masculine brain. 
Yeah, like there's a bit in the book um, that I found really interesting because he's, it's you know he's saying that uh, was it he said uh, oh, uh, see. Uh, autism, which makes it difficult for people to understand and relate to others, is an extreme version of the male brain. This is why people diagnosed with autism, they've mostly been men, although many more women are now being identified with the condition too, sometimes show unusual systemizing behavior, like the ability to do mathematical calculations in their head very quickly, or to memorize train timetables. He's saying that that's a, a male trait. Like, this is... Yeah. Yeah. On a more serious note, yeah. Um, the interesting thing about sort of the lack of, or you know, the difference in numbers between men and women being diagnosed with autism, is there's a lot of there's a lot of recent stuff coming out. So Gina Rippon, who is a neuroscientist based at Aston University in Birmingham, I think, um, she's done quite a lot of work and um, as part of a team that shows part of the reason for the differences in diagnosis between boys and girls, men and women, when it comes to autism is that we as a society socialize women in a much sort of stronger way to be social, to be empathic. So you often find that women who have autistic traits who are on the spectrum learn very early on to just learn the patterns of human behavior and to learn what is expected and what is socially acceptable for them because it's almost like the downside of not doing that is much bigger you know they are excluded from society in a way that men who are on the autistic spectrum are not so the fact is they've got like a lot more to lose there we expect something of girls that we aren't expecting of boys so those girls are you know have a lot of pressure to find an alternative way of expressing empathy so instead of expressing it in the same way that someone who is naturally empathic might do they learn it and we know that learning facts learning figures learning patterns is something that people with autistic tendencies tend to be very good at and so that is the solution they find to being sociable so you're explaining it from that aspect but mm -hmm. what was really interesting here is that you know, Baron Cohen, um, he's saying that the crucial element is like the sex hormone. So like those chemicals that we see as being like the fundamental things that make the physical differences between, mm -hmm. you know, what we see as men and what we see as women. Mm -hmm. um, and he's saying that it's all about testosterone exposure mm -hmm. in the womb, you know, the mm -hmm. things that make your genitals and your gonads like develop and stuff. Um, but he's saying it somehow feeds and like gets into the male fetus's brain and molds it into this different thing than the female brain which i thought was like it's really interesting and i think for me looking at that it's very easy to see something like that and go like oh facts you know like mm. oh i can see the like in my head i can be like oh that makes sense that makes sense that mm -hmm. makes sense not in that i have those views but mm -hmm. i can mm -hmm. i can see how easy it is to go down that yeah. train of thought i think the problem we live in such a gendered world you know we don't have any control here every single one of us has been brought up in a world that to varying degrees says that girls and boys are different men and women are different you know studies show that people talk to fetuses in the womb differently once they know whether they are you know whether it's a female or male baby so none of us are blank slates and we have nothing to compare it to. And I think this is the problem. Um, again, mentioning sort of Gina Rippon, because I'm afraid like she's one of my absolute heroes. 
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Gina sort of spoken about how, you know, part of all these differences that are coming out is the way that we analyze the data because we're analyzing it as two discrete populations. Whereas actually, if you jumble all the data together, if the, if the differences were really there, you'd be able to separate it again, but you can't. Once you put it all together, you can't tell who is male, who is female, which is a male brain, which is a female brain from imaging. So... You know, it's when you look at things like that, that it's absolutely absurd that we can get so caught up in wanting to see these differences and accepting that these differences are real. Like, I think what I thought was really interesting in this book um, is reading more about like Baron Cohen and stuff mm. and his work, um, sort of his further work and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and one thing that I marked down was, you know, he did a study looking at one of the biggest sources of data in the world 
I think he's got, was it 20,000? No, 19,000 amniotic fluid samples in Denmark mm. taken from pregnant women between 93 and 99. And he's looking, I mean, he was saying that his hypothesis was that, you know, high amounts of testosterone in the fetus. Mm. Um, and those are the things that are linked to autism, you know, leading to that idea of the extreme male brain, mm. which I think is a really great, like, energy drink slogan and so his team's measuring the hormone levels and the fluid samples working out how much testosterone uh, these babies have been exposed to etc etc and then they're they're cross-checking that with the records of the same sets of children to be like oh are like do these uh, people you know are they have any of these kids been diagnosed with a condition on the autism mm. spectrum and they found like 128 130 people um, who had been and this other um, this other researcher Melissa Hines um, just went against you know Baron Cohen's work and was like no none of your like data show anything you know none of your data shows anything like that um, it's like you've got all this data and you're saying this could be the perfect test and what did it show it showed sweet fuck all um, you know there's no you know like you said before correlation and causation mm -hmm. And there's no correlation here. Um, and I guess it's that bit when I saw it, and I was sort of like, you're if you've got all these hypotheses, if you've got all these hypotheses really going at, you know, saying that autism is the extreme male brain. Mm. And the way in which they're explaining autism isn't, I guess, isn't the negative side effects. Mm. Or, you know, the way they're explaining autism, um, didn't really focus on the traits that society can see as negative mm. um sort of like social implications um focusing on things like number crunching um memory you know things that are you know people would call mm. positive describing that as potentially i mean she didn't say that but you know when the reader reads it as a form of like sexism in research mm. like you know, going with your like a research question and the research hypothesis that isn't overtly like saying you know men are better because mm. they have the capability of when they hit their extreme it is or look at all these traits that yeah, they have yeah. that are brilliant whereas you know when women hit our extreme we're hysterical and deserve to be locked up in mental mental institutions it's free room and board <laughs> i mean if we want to talk about the extreme male brain just jumping jump, you know sorry this is like a slight um subject change but it's been shown that like the levels of testosterone in men's bodies on like stock exchanges is like almost at a level where it affects the way they're thinking like it increases risk-taking behavior <laughs> and i mean like this this is where you just you know you look at some of these things and you're like okay so regardless of whether they like the differences are you know sort of hardwired in us there are differences that are manifesting themselves in the world that are harmful like you know there are people who've hypothesized like if there were lower testosterone levels on stock ex in the stock exchanges in you know our big financial centers in the men or if there'd be more women around like would the financial crash have happened uh, like that's an enormous thing to think about wow that's okay yeah that that fucking blows my mind um mm-hmm Damn. I'm going to blow your mind a little bit more on this, right? Because part of reading the book for me, and it's definitely like, you know, we're talking about how emotionally draining it is in some ways, but it also fills me with so much hope 
because human beings are fundamentally plastic like we can change our brains can change throughout our lives our behavior can change you know that is one of the things that arguably sets us apart from other animals even the other you know primates and there's things in the book like for example that in societies where men play more of a role in childcare, their testosterone levels are lower so if we had more equitable parenting policies in the workplace, you know, if the men who are in charge of our global finances, if the men who are in charge of our, you know, governments were spending more time with their children, you know, or generally, you know, more time with their families, would we have a different structure to society? But there's something in there that I think is a thread that runs through the whole book. And it's it's almost that like seeing sex and gender as a case study of just how flawed science can get especially when you take you know scientific techniques that aren't as cut and dry as people want to think they are so like brain imaging and extrapolating animal studies to sort of you know draw conclusions about human behavior like all of the you know there's problems in loads of the techniques that are used to study sex and gender and then you combine that with people's own biases, 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 um, and you end up with just a lot of results that can't be replicated, that or you know have been disproven. And there's a there's a quote in the book about um, one of the re- there's a researcher called Cahill, and he describes himself as being on a crusade to show that there are you know differences between male and female brains. I'm like. If you're describing your science as a crusade, you're in quite dangerous territory. So um, I thought that there was a really interesting bit in here talking about how um, characterizing the sexes um, is somehow like framed as, I think Angela says, complementary, saying that women have certain traits, men have certain traits, and they complement one another. But, you know, those traits are always ones which end up with men having the role of power and then it ends up like just being used to define women's roles in society mm-hmm. and not elevating them but giving them you know a boxed in set of rules and i think what was really interesting was um the philosopher jean-jacques rousseau from the 18th century um like the fact that he was one of the intellectuals um who argued against women's equality just on the basis that men and women weren't the same physically or mentally, but the fact that they're saying that biologically each of them were designed for different spheres. And the fact that that was something that was accepted at the time mm-hmm. and the like that notion pervaded until very, very recently. Mm-hmm. You know, that that women are natural um like mothers and wives and you know like supporters mm-hmm. whereas you know men like the husband fills the role of like breadwinner going out there and stuff and that i think is something that you know it's something that pervaded for a long time which means that scientists who are there now either grew up or had parents who grew up with that notion mm-hmm. and lived in a society that reinforced that and mm-hmm. i thought to me that was really interesting because Rousseau was someone that you know I studied mm. at university and stuff. That shit sort of made me go, wow, this is a really, really big mm-hmm. deal because it's mm-hmm. not just happening on the individual level. This mm-hmm. is... I mean, there's um, Trivers, Robert Trivers, who comes up quite a lot in the book and is definitely you know one of like the fathers of zoology and animal behaviour. 
it's I think there's there's a bit in it that's really interesting when he actually says something about how Sarah Hardy should just focus more on being a better mother rather than on her science. And I think there's something telling about that because I think a lot of these men, and it is men, who are doing the research that is showing there are these differences and that women are essentially inferior. They sometimes have this tendency to be like, oh, but it's, we're not actually sexist. We're just showing what's there. And it's like, well, but if you turn around and tell a female scientist she should be focusing on being a mother, you're sexist. But that's the same. I mean, that's really, really similar because it's, it's that mindset mm. when you've got people like James Watson. You know, yeah, It's almost like this negative feedback loop where the biases create a society which shapes people's views. So one of my favorite slash least favorite quotes um, that's in Inferior is by Miller. And, you know, you talk about Rousseau's views, like being from, you know, quite a while ago. Like Miller in 2000, you know, said this, male nightingales sing more and male peacocks display more impressive visual ornaments. Male humans sing and talk more in public gatherings and produce more paintings and architecture. And it's like, no, that's because of the freaking society we live in. Like, you want you want to see how much women can talk? Maybe sit quietly in a room full of women. <laughs> like, like I fucking love that because the, you, he was literally like, oh, you know, peacocks are pretty, they're pretty fucking out. They're pretty flamboyant, you know. And I guess uh, I'm going to extrapolate from there and just draw that parallel that, you know, men, men, men are more expressive. You know, and men are going to continue to express, and then little boys are going to learn that they should express more and you know do all these things, and society's going to make it easier for them to do that. And I'm like, yeah, that makes perfect sense, of course. I think as a zoologist, I absolutely love, like, I love and hate all the extrapolations from animal behaviour so much because I love that these people are like, look at the peacock's tail. We're like peacocks. But like, you know, they're never like, well, rabbits eat their own shit and we should do that when we're more closely related to rabbits than we are to peacocks. Like, you cannot take random animals from across the animal kingdom and go, we're like them. There are people out there who use um, animal behavior to show things like, oh, um, homosexuality and different sexual behaviors in humans are completely normal because animals do it, Mm. which I guess is a weird, very, very, very strange thing to equate people's lifestyles. I mean, um, any sort of, you know, conflation of homosexual behaviour in animals um, and homosexual behaviour in humans is considered really problematic. So when you have people doing that, equating people's lived experiences to animal behaviour, mm. um, we know that's super problematic, um, no matter what the intent mm-hmm. is. So you can extrapolate backwards from there and, and show that doing it for to show that men are better mm. equally, if not more problematic. I think, you know, so often animal behavior and zoology as a whole is presented in the public sphere as this sort of, you know, series of hilarious behaviors, especially when it comes to animal sexual behaviors. And when you've like actually studied zoology, it is meant it's systematic you know you can't draw conclusions from a single bird you can't draw conclusions from you know one study you need to look at a whole you know body of research and look at patterns it's all about patterns and relationships and things like that and i think that is part of the problem of things like looking at homosexual behavior in animals or looking at male dominance in animals it's it isn't scientifically like you know robust 
Um, what I really thought was interesting um, was the way in which Angela was talking about um, the fact that zoology, like you say, really mm. shouldn't be used um, as a basis, as a as a baseline for human behavior mm. to try and draw those parallels. And it was in talking about how humans and apes differ in how we give birth. Mm -hmm. So like chimpanzee females, you know, they they seclude themselves before they give birth, like hiding from predators mm -hmm. and stuff. Um, and because apparently, I know, you probably know this because you know infanticide, chimps eat, like chimps will eat the infants of their own species. Yeah. That's okay. That is infanticide. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's, uh, that's, I mean, infanticide specifically is killing, but generally in the animal kingdom, there's quite a lot of eating the things you kill. Yeah, I mean, so humans don't do that. No. Um, surprisingly. <laughs> And Although, I mean, we could have a whole podcast about the problems of consuming the placenta after giving birth, but you know. Yeah, let's not do that. <laughs> it's always white people. Of course it is. <laughs> You've got expectant mothers, you know, mothers about to give birth. They actually, they look for support. They, mm. they. It's the opposite of seclusion, you know? You've mm -hmm. got doctors, midwives, partners, family, like all these things that that come, you know, all these things, all, all these support groups uh, when giving birth. And, you know, the fact that in a lot of human cultures, like a lot of um, places around the world, like it's really, really rare to have like sole childbirth like being mm -hmm. there by yourself and i mean there's been all sorts of studies that have looked at um i can't remember the period but i think it's i think it was sort of 60s and 70s sort of time um when it was in the west quite normal for a woman to sort of be left alone with medical professionals and have no family with her um and there's all sorts of studies that have shown how problematic that was and also that it you know that basically the father should be present at the birth and all these things and I mean going back to that you know not cherry picking from zoology I find this whole bit about how birth works and how mothers connect to their newborns this is exactly what I mean by like you know looking for patterns like 50% of non-human primates rarely lose contact with their infant in the early stages of life whereas you know we'll know from anyone we've seen who is a new mother, new father, baby gets passed around, you know, every, especially, I mean, especially in collectivist societies like the cultures that we come from, you know, a baby basically becomes past the parcel for like the first few months of their life. Alex, don't you remember? I took care of you when you were this small and, you know, and I, I oh, I bathed you from six months to 12 months, you know, oh, you know, I used to, uh, you know, get you ready for school for one year to two year, you know, I, was like, I didn't go to school one year old to two years old. I don't remember me. No, I don't remember. Oh, I was there all the time. No, I've got like 20 people at every family event who come up to me saying they took care of me. <laughs> yep. And I'm, and like, I'm now, I'm like now out the other side. Like I recently went back to Singapore, like lots of big family gatherings because one of my closest cousins is getting married. And you literally like sort of switch into this mindset where you are aware of every child under the age of about 10. And you're like, you know, there was a moment when me and someone else just dove for one of like the toddlers who was like crawling in the aisle as the like bride and groom were trying to walk down. Um, you know, making sure that the kids aren't that close to water, like anyone will turn around and scream at them for like trying to swim whilst there's thunder and lightning. And 
but yeah like going back to patterns the fact that in this like in this thing that is a really really like core part of our biology like you know how we treat babies we are so different from primates and we're so different from our closest relatives like orangutans chimps and gorillas nurse for like four to seven years and you know if this is what we should be doing we should be comparing ourselves to like all of our closest relatives in the animal kingdom not cherry picking and trying to convince ourselves that we are like fucking peacocks I think the chapter that I was sort of waiting for through like the first six chapters was to get to the chapter on why the freaking hell do men actually dominate? You know, if you look at all the research, like the fact that, yeah, women get sicker, but men die quicker, that there are problems on both sides. You know, you look at all the convincing evidence that hunter-gatherer societies were fairly egalitarian, that, you know, women were hunting they were out there the fact that even when they were just gathering stuff they were bringing in more calories and more you know consistent calories for like their tribes to live on than the hunters were male hunters were and so it's like why how did we get from that to through you know super super patriarchal societies to modern day which is you know still fundamentally fucked up and yes, I think the why men dominate chapter was the bit that I found the most interesting. Okay, how did we get here? Good question. Um, so the theory is that as hunter-gatherers started settling down, you know, as we became farmers, and as we started accumulating property, particularly crops, land, things like that, that it became very, very important to have a system for how that property got passed along. And suddenly paternity, you know, knowing who your children were, was much, much more important. Um, and essentially that was when women became almost like property. With, with the rise of, you know, patriarchies, women lost earning power they lost the ability to own property they you know slowly moved out of public life they lost control of their children's destinies while still being solely responsible for actually raising their children i love that um, i I, I, I really liked because it was like oh yeah well the thing that you take care of almost 24 7 and get absolutely no real recompense for and get told well it's just your duty to do mm -hmm. it you don't actually get to choose the destiny of you know get to have a say in it it's just yep yeah, go on do the thing i tell you to do and which is of course a major issue in lots of societies today still i think that's with this book with this book it's interrogating it so much mm. um that it sort of makes you take a step back like you i read when in my brain when i read books i always read books like fiction mm. and um so i assume in my brain even though i know books aren't non-fiction i read them like stories yeah and that's what's really good about this book is it reads you know like a story mm. it reads like a really good narrative mm -hmm. um and it is such a well-written book like it's really it's really like seriously if you haven't read this book get hold of it you can't fucking say that yeah i can because i've read it now <laughs> it's only what two years later <laughs> no but um i always read books i mean put it on your list even if you read it in two years that's better than not reading it at all yeah oh but don't listen to the audiobook um it's not it's 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 the audiobook is narrated by someone who I'm sure they are a brilliant audiobook like reader, but 
it made the book uncomfortable. So what I was just saying about how, you know, there are still plenty of societies in the world where women don't have control over what happens to their children. I there was particularly I think reading the book whilst I was in Singapore, you know, being like exposed to like a culture I've grown up in, but one that I sort of aren't I don't live in all the time. I I did have this creeping sense that I think the way the book is written with an appreciation of different cultures and a respect for like tribes that exist today. I I'm generally not sure this book could have been written by someone who hasn't been exposed to multiple cultures and i think that's yeah i think that is really good because it's really easy to make a book that is about how men and women's brains mm, are mm. aren't different and how mm. science got things wrong but to go the extra step yeah and to do all of these narratives like yeah. you say it's like it makes for and, a more and, rounded but it's piece also, it's the respect it's mm. the not you know i just feel so often when research is done on hunter-gatherer societies today it is a bit like oh look at these people who still live like we used to live you know whereas this felt a bit more like let's look at these you know amazing societies that are an insight into how we might have lived how we could live you know who who are insight into who, who we are as humans um and i just i just felt that the book as far as culture and sort of ethnicity and race went the book felt intersectional i mean there are definitely limits to that you know the book very much looks at sex as and gender as a binary um but it it does feel conscious of that and i i'm not sure how i don't think it could have accomplished quite as much whilst also um, taking into account intersex conditions, non-binary individuals, um, and things like that. Because there was, you know, there were lots of bits about like, um, you know, when people think of sex as being XX, XY, mm-hmm. you know, it did talk about, um, you know, all the other phenotypes and it talked about, you know, all mm-hmm. the other genotypes, you know, mm-hmm. XXY, et cetera. So I thought that was really, really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though it was something I knew, what was really good about it, you know, like I say, like I read every book sort of like fiction. Mm. So it was a wonderful story, you know, like saying wonderfully written mm. and to see little bits of knowledge like peppered in there, mm. like things that, to see things that I'd learned, you know, previously in like university and stuff, to see it written in such a like interesting way where I learned, like I learned yeah, more. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, lo- I love how objective and like journalistic it is. I think that's what's absolutely beautiful about Angela's writing. Like there were moments when I sort of was quite disappointed that she didn't like absolutely rip someone to shreds because I think there were plenty of people in there who deserved ripping to shreds like Mr. Men Do Architecture and Speak More. Um, but fundamentally, I don't, I don't think you'd end up with such a beautiful book. Um, if you did that and I, I don't think as many people would read it um and i think what's lovely about the book is you can come at it as someone like me who knows a lot about the topic who is you know a card-carrying feminist and enjoy it and get something out of it but i think if you don't necessarily identify as a feminist or if you're skeptical of feminist movements and you know all that sort of stuff i think you can read the book without feeling attacked um and without feeling like someone is coming for your worldview um, and I think that's part of why the book has been so successful. Yeah, and I think what was really cool about it is while I was reading it, um, I was definitely aware of the fact that she's pulled together such a, a good book that that no one 
would know all of these things apart mm. from her yeah. or after yeah. you know she's researched yeah. it um so everyone can come with a little bit of knowledge it's not like yeah. someone yeah. someone can read this book and go well obviously i knew all of that already yeah. I, I think it's the framework she's putting the knowledge in like i did know a lot of this stuff you know like it's study after study that i've written about that i've you know i've read i've read a lot of the papers that i mentioned but i still got something from it um and I doubt that there are many people out there who would, you know, who would have more of a knowledge than me, because I think actually people who are studying the area are probably more stuck in the niche. Um, but it's, it's just so beautifully written. Um. We've hinted at the hype a bit in like just how much harassment Alex has given me for not reading the book. But it's amazing i mean we're sat here and alex has got an inferior hoodie with him i've got an inferior pin on my coat you know i mean, we- I mean oh, look first and foremost your inferior pin right that is that's a, a merch that's merch for the book right or yes my inferior hoodie is it like it's a rip on supreme you know the the hype beast isn't the entire inferior logo a rip off of supreme i i mean in my i thought no i thought the logo i don't care how it came about like i wanted a supreme hoodie supreme like hoodies cost a lot supreme merch i'm like, judging you so much for wanting a supreme hoodie all right don't blame me because you haven't got um hype beast tendencies but um I yeah I I really like the hoodie it's really warm um I'm actually I'm gonna get real here I think within the circles we move in there has been a lot of hype and it has become a bit of a phenomenon people you know are wearing their badges with pride t-shirts um there's been all these campaigns to get the books into schools in the UK and I think now Canada and elsewhere in the world I do think that like we should be a bit skeptical of thinking that the hype means it's a cultural phenomenon like you know I've got plenty of friends who don't move within science circles including plenty of feminist friends who haven't read the book or who haven't even heard of the book um and so i think with many things that sort of you know get hyped within science we should be a bit cautious of say like calling it a cultural phenomenon so but the hype is real like it's it's really yeah the hype is real and i think for very good reason as you know we've talked about it's a really well written book i think the neutrality in the book is, is one of its biggest strengths um and angela is amazing as well i mean yeah but you got to you got to separate the work from the person now that's been a running theme in things (laughs) we talk about um but you know just because the book is doing really well Mm. within a certain field um do you think that some of that has come from the fact that people want it people like you know you've got women in science there are a lot of women you know I yeah t- i mean it's slightly more than 50 percent of society yeah you know like there are a lot of rumors so so it it should do well that's the thing it does it's got all the it's got legs like it's mm, it's gonna do mm, it's mm. gonna it, it hits it's got a market but i think you know i've been pleasantly surprised by how many men have read it and how mm. many men read it you know almost immediately mm. like I mean, even even you guys like i was to be honest i was surprised that you and oz picked up the book and read you know read it cover to cover before like right you. when i know before me right when it came out and plenty of other men in science i know have done that and that is really refreshing that's really nice and I think it, it's not just that, like, you know, it's not just a, a book about um, 
you know, how science got women wrong was needed. It was this book was needed. Mm. Um, it needed to all be set out. And I think it also needed to be set out at a point now when, you know, it's remembering that second half of that title, the new research that's setting the story straight. Mm. It is a time of positivity. It's exactly what I just, you know, said about like, there is the, the potential, like we're not as hardwired as we may have previously felt we were. And there is a great, I think the optimism and positivity in the book, despite it being a book about things that have been got wrong, is one of its biggest strengths. So she's got another book coming out. Yeah, so Angela's new book's going to be coming out at the end of May. Um, and it's called Superior and it's going to be about race science. And I am so freaking excited. Yeah, no, I really want to see it because this book, Inferior, has you know done really, really well, like mm -hmm. you're saying. Mm -hmm. And people really getting behind it like everyone mm. men women mm. like people people think it's fantastic yeah and i think i'll be really interested to see um like people who really pushed you know, inferior mm. saying how great it was will they still push superior yeah i'm i'm really caught at the moment between being really hopeful and also sort of preparing myself to be disappointed um obviously not the book like i just as much as i don't want to think this i feel like there will be silence mm -hmm. from certain areas of science from certain areas of society um that people who you know people in groups and this is not you know about individuals i just think that fundamentally I don't think there will be as much excitement about Superior. You're saying white women are the weakest link. We're not putting that on the podcast. <laughs> so, I mean, okay, yeah, I know. I agree. I, I think I'll be very, very surprised if there's the same push to get Superior, the book about race mm -hmm. science, into every school in the country. Mm -hmm. If there's a push to get it internationally, mm -hmm. you know, I'm hoping there'll be the same marketing campaign, yeah. you know, whether or not Angela will do as many talks, because I've seen, you know, there's so many talks like you know uk spain like mm -hmm. around the world will there still be her doing uh, will she still be doing those talks mm -hmm. solely about superior and not about inferior and then we're going oh yeah you've got a book about race science mm -hmm. and you know with this book like i've i've seen her on a couple of panels mm -hmm. and there's a lot of having to explain you know sexism mm -hmm. and that sort of detracts from talking about the book you know the new things the book's talking mm. about and i think it's going to be very interesting with the next book superior to see like how much time she has to spend in you know in talks and in, in stuff explaining how yep no racism is a thing yep no no britain still yeah i know it's not as bad as america no britain still has racism like you know if, and i think also that that racism infiltrates science yeah you know i think I mean, I'm also intrigued to, to you know, I think part of the excitement and the conversations around it are going to be what's in the book. Mm. And I've mentioned that a lot of the science in Inferior was things that I was aware of, whereas I don't know that much about race science. And I think very few of us do. I think, you know, it's not something that is discussed widely. You know, apart from the hype stories about people being idiots or about people trying to like, you know, um, blah, claim superiority. I was going to say, you haven't seen uh, YouTube comments on anything I do online when people end up saying, oh, a black person talking about science. You're one of the good ones because, I mean, we all know that they're inherently inferior. I mean, that's why Africa isn't as well developed. <laughs> I know. It's genetics, not colonialism. Um, 
yeah so I, I i think it'll be really interesting to bring all that research together and going back to what i said about you know once want, wanting to be hopeful maybe laying it out maybe laying all the problems with race science out in hopefully as beautifully written a book as inferior will get people talking about this get people talking about it who haven't been talking about it um so i guess yeah i am a bit hopeful hannah how do you feel about the book like all in all optimistic i think there's there's a quote from angela in the final bit which is we've given ourselves the option to live however we want and i think that that's what it comes down to for me you know i would hope at least in western society we accept that women are no longer property and they are not just walking wombs so therefore like what have we got to lose by going forward you know in an equal way in a way that assumes that men and women are both you know capable of being amazing parents of being scientists politicians leaders like we as i mentioned earlier we are an incredibly plastic adaptive species it is our niche and we should embrace that and we should challenge the norms that we've got ourselves stuck in so you think that people should definitely read this book yes yeah read it well we've come to the end of the podcast i've been joined by hannah ayub this is the point where generally people make sad noises, but I understand no. Oz and Tahel To be honest, here. I'm quite happy to get out of the studio. Uh, I have been your host, Alex Lathbridge, and this has been Why Are You a Doctor? Bye. <laughs>